The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Terzak, and welcome. Well, Jackie, I don't think we can get by this week without, again, talking about the price of oil. The price of oil, WTI, West Texas Intermediate in the United States, poked its head above $80. It's got an eight in front of it now. And so that's significant. I think the last I looked, it was almost $83 US. And that has implications beyond being a psychological marker. It also has implications to what happens, starts happening uh, to the price at the pump, the demand side, also has big implications for producers of oil and gas. And because Canada is the fourth largest producer of oil and gas in the world, it has big implications in terms of the local economy. And given that the local economy here in Alberta is 76% of Canada's oil and gas production, Every dollar and certainly every $10 rise, like going from $70 to $80, has got huge implications in terms of the fiscal situation. So that's what we want to talk about today. That's right. We're going to talk about, well, first of all, the outlook for oil and gas. And, and many of you know, issue our ARC charts each week. And mm-hmm. so we want to introduce the financial metrics as we close out 2021, but also what we're expecting for 2022. So we'll talk about that. Then we'll talk about Well, we are in this high price cycle. And Peter, you just put out a commentary about what's different this time versus the past few high price Mm -hmm. cycles. So we'll go through. It does look quite a bit different in many ways. And I think that's worth talking about. And then I just want to finish off with this pretty high profile report that came out last week. The IA released a report on Canadian energy and they gave some recommendations to help Canada manage through the energy transition. So I wanted to talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about some of the recommendations and I agreed with many of them. And so we'll, we'll talk about that as well. It's all Canada energy. So let's start with what happened in 2021. We've just closed off that year. What were the oil and gas price averages? We averaged $68 WTI in 2021 and 347 per gigajoule at ACO for the gas. So those are you know quite high prices relative to where we've been for the last several years. They don't look high maybe now compared to uh, where the prices are today, but they were very good and the industry was quite healthy. And I do want to say, I'm going to put a link to our latest ARC charts. And if you go to the very last page, you're going to see all these numbers. But for 2021, billion in revenue. So that's basically, if you take the production of the industry, multiply it by those prices, that's the kind of number that you get. That's an all-time record for revenue in in all the years that the Canadian oil and gas industry has been in business. So that's pretty, pretty remarkable. And almost $89 billion of cash flow. And the cash flow is what's left over after you take that revenue you pay your taxes, your royalties, your operating expenses, your expenses for people in Calgary and things like that. That's what's left over. This is before you go and spend money on yeah. capital. I, I think this is a really big number and we knew it was going to be big, but $158 billion in revenue. The last high watermark was 2014 at $144 billion. And so we've got $12 billion higher in revenue. The cash flow was about $67 billion in 2014. That was the mm-hmm. last episode when we had $100 a barrel. 
And we've got 89 almost billion, 88.9 billion dollars. I mean, it's just these are just really big numbers that are going to percolate through the economy. But I think the big news is, is that, as you said, the price of oil averaged $68 last year. And this year, already we're above 80. So the numbers are going to be record setting again with high likelihood. I do want to point out one other thing before we move off 2021, though, is uh, of this $89 billion, a fairly small part of it, $34 billion, went to capital spending, resulting in about 4,600 new wells uh, drilled mm-hmm. in Western Canada. So that's quite different. We'll talk about what's different from last time, but that really isn't a huge amount of activity. So that's the part that didn't reflect the higher prices and those high revenues and cash flows. So it doesn't feel quite like it did in 2014 because not as much of that money is going towards uh, capital spending. No, this is a very different era and that's what we want to talk about. So why don't we do that? Why don't we talk about the differences between this high price era that we're entering versus the high price eras of the past? And I'm thinking specifically of the year sort of 2007 when the price of oil went from the $50 mark, and then eventually by the 2008, 2009, it was into the $100 range. And then again, to, you know, post-financial crisis and that, that 2000, I'm just guessing here, 13, 14 era, just before the big glut and the price war of 2014, 15, again, there was just a, a lot of revenue that was generated in that era. So why don't we talk about the differences between then and now? Okay, let's do that. So, well, one of the differences is higher output. You know, people may, yeah. may not appreciate it. Since the 2014 kind of era, on average, that 2012 to 14 period, we have about 35% more production on a barrel of oil equivalent, if you can consider both gas and oil. Wow. So that's huge. So that's why, you know, you at, a, at any given price, you're going to make a lot more revenue because you just have more sure. units to sell. So price times volume equals revenue and the volumes are up 35% since that last high-priced year of uh, 2011 to 14. So that just means that all else being equal, your revenues are 35% higher and you have much more of a coupling, as I said, or much more torque to those price changes in the commodities, oil and gas, especially oil because a large part of that output growth has been from the oil sands. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's actually the stronger commodity. At the end of this section, we'll talk a little bit about the outlook for 2022. Gas prices are not quite as high as the outlook for oil, but it, you know, oil yeah. really is the thing that, that has yeah. the biggest impact on the revenues. Now, the other big thing that's different from back then to today is the exchange rate. So, Back certainly in the 2007 to 10 era, and actually even in that uh, the early part of last decade, we were basically Canadian dollar at parity with the US dollar. And the Canadian dollar was very much considered a petrodollar, whereby it moved sympathetically up and down with the price of oil. And as the price of oil strengthened, the value of the Canadian dollar appreciated relative to the US. It's not happening this time. Uh, the Canadian dollar is stuck around, say, 80 cents. And it's just really not, it's moving a little bit with the, as the price of oil appreciates, but really nothing like it has in the past. This has very profound implications as well on revenue because we get paid in US dollars. US dollars is the currency that oil trades under. So at higher oil price, 
you get 20% more Canadian dollars. Yeah, yeah, that's a real difference. And if you even go back to 2007 and eight, do you remember that, Peter, when the Canadian dollar was actually a premium? That's when going to the States for holidays was a lot more fun and -hmm. shopping in the US was a lot more fun. But for the Canadian producers, it wasn't great because they would sell their products you know, in US dollars and then only get like, you know, 90 cents Canadian back or whatever. So this period is is actually helping them out in that they get a bit of a local boost when they, when they turn their money back into Canadian dollars, it's worth more. And so that's super helpful versus previous. Yeah. So the other big difference here is market access. You know, we've stopped talking about pipelines over dinner conversations, but market access was a big issue over the course of the last decade. With that aggressive production growth, of course, it put pressure on the pipelines and periodically we had very deep discounts. So the producers were unable to really realize the full potential of the rise in West Texas intermediate prices because the Canadian prices would be depressed or discounted relative to the U.S. Yeah, and this was a real problem in that it's really in that 2012 to 14 era. Basically, it was the real problem started in 2012 when you know we grew our production so much out of Western Canada, combine that with the fact, if you remember, that's when tide oil was taking off in North Dakota. And so that was you know putting all this crude oil into the Midwest and Ontario, which is our main markets, and they were becoming oversupplied. And we actually had much lower prices through all of the inner part of the North America compared to at the coasts. Yeah. Uh, and prices fell very quickly. At times, between 2012 and 13, we had a 10 or $20 discount, but there were times when it was even 50% greater. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you remember this, but this is when Premier Alison Redford blamed the bitumen bubble on the government's budget crunch because of that. Uh, we were forfeiting something like between 50 and $20 billion in revenue each year, and it resulted in lower royalties for the Alberta government. And that's when um, started to be real focus on lobbying for new pipelines at that time. Right. And then rail started to come in as well. And so we are in a situation today where with production growth having moderated, we've had line three come on, TMX is on the way. There is rail capacity to take off any excess production, if but that's really not forthcoming. And so we've got a situation where the price of Canadian oil relative to continental oil is trading at about normal in terms of its uh, price differentials. And that means that the revenue is going to be strong in addition to the exchange rate phenomenon that we talked about, in addition to the production growth. So this is why we're going to be seeing tremendous amount of revenue in 2022 on the back of a record year in 2021. But that's not the only thing because uh, you talked about the cash flow and revenue minus costs is cash flow. And so let's talk about those operating costs. Yeah, operating costs are the biggest component of costs that uh, producers have to pay out of their revenue, especially for the oil sands. There's just been a phenomenal change in the operating costs compared to that 2014 era, the last time we saw Mm. prices like this. You know, we have data from CAP and StatsCan that shows that the operating costs are down somewhere in the range of half of what they were back in that era. So it's, it's a huge amount of change and a yeah. lot of innovation and optimization has occurred in the oil sands to, to achieve that. Yeah. So just to give you some sense of the numbers, it was almost $35 a barrel operating cost for a barrel of oil sands on average. And that has fallen to under 20 bucks, you know, 15 yeah. to $20 and increasing optimization, the pursuit of decarbonization. 
because increasing efficiency lowers your carbon output as well, is driving these costs. Now, we haven't seen the same amount of cost reduction in the conventional non-oil signs of the business, but they too, uh, the non-oil sands producers are enjoying quite high revenue and cash flow as well because they produce the lighter oils and the lighter oils are not subject to the same quality discounts as the heavier grade bitumen. So operating costs are a huge part of why, you know, at a given price, there's more money to be made because you're giving less to the operating costs, which is providing more free cash flow. Mm-hmm. So cash flow, we've already talked about that. And when you have greater cash flow, especially in the oil sands, you have what's called payout of the oil sands projects comes much faster. So there's 2010, actually, I'd go back to 2006 ish, 2006 to 2017 was really the era of very high spending on oil sands projects. And that era really ended starting around 2015, 16, with the price of oil coming down. And of course, all the environmental concerns and the ESG and all of that. So the investment, I think it was like 250 billion plus in that decade. Once it pays out, then all of a sudden, the royalties go higher, substantially higher because it's what's called post payout. And a lot of those projects now are starting to pay out because the cash flow is much higher and the formulas are tied to the cash flow. So that combined with the formulas on the conventional side of the business, and this is not only Alberta, I mean, you can go to BC, Saskatchewan, Newfoundland, Labrador, each one has a bit of a different royalty scheme, but the royalties from the industry are going to be much stronger than they have been over the course of the last half dozen years. Yeah, yeah. So the Alberta government had done a midterm update around their fiscal year that ends in March of 2022, and they were expecting about $11 billion for the fiscal year ending in March of 2022. Yeah. I expect the actual number will come in higher because oil prices since that has come out have been stronger, and Q1 looks like it's going to be quite strong. And I expect even higher numbers next year from Alberta. And um, that's really consequential. A lot of these provinces have spent a lot of money because of COVID and had been running deficits. So it will be really meaningful to see yeah. some increase in revenue for, for a lot of these provinces. No, it's, it's the, if, you, if you look at the total amount of revenue in Canada, I think back in 2020, the pandemic year, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it was less than $4 billion in royalties to all the producing provinces. And I think this year, you're probably going to hit 17. It's a dramatic increase. In 2022. 2022, yeah. yeah. It's a really dramatic increase. And that's going to put the producing provinces in a better fiscal position. Now, shareholders are beneficiaries too, though. They're the other ones that are getting some of this cash flow as a lot of the companies are, instead of spending all that money on capital programs, they are giving more money back to shareholders and if we look at our 2022 numbers, we estimate there's still about $55 billion uh, left over after their CapEx spending. And some of that is going to go to debt repayments, but a big chunk of that is going to go to shareholders. Yeah, I think this is one of the biggest differences ever in the 100 plus year history of the oil and gas business. And it's not just the phenomena here in Canada, it's also happening in the United States, it's happening in the European multinationals, is that the incremental cash flows are not necessarily being reinvested back into the ground for more drilling, more facilities construction, and so on. And this, in part, is a consequence of divestment, ESG, climate change policy, etc. 
where the cash flow, if it is not reinvested back into the ground, if it's strong, then it goes back to the shareholders and the investors. So it's uh, just really an uh, amazing dynamic we have not seen in the history of this business because, as I said, the paradigm of the business was you take your cash flow and you reinvest it back into the ground to grow production to satisfy increasing demand. The outlook is considerably different for oil consumption, oil policy, and so on. So now we have a situation where these companies in times of high commodity prices are just major generators of cash flow and therefore dividends and share buybacks. Well, and just to put it in perspective, uh, you know, another implication to the Alberta and Western Canadian economy is we're not seeing as much happen here in terms of spending. So just, yeah. you know, the, that ratio you talked about in the 2011 to 14 era, about 120% of the cash flow was being spent on CapEx. So not only were they taking all the money they generated from the industry as cash flow and spending it, they were spending even more. They were getting you know, debt or, or new equity. This year, we expect only about 40 to 45% or so to yeah. be spent in the Alberta economy. So to just to put that in perspective, back in that 2014 era, about $80 billion annually was being spent on capital projects, a lot of that in Alberta uh, and in Western provinces. This year, we expect half as much is going into the local economy. So that's why it just doesn't feel like the boom that we experienced uh, back in 2014, because you've taken like $40 billion less going into the local economy in terms of capital spending. But you're right, Jackie. One of the things we're not seeing is the activity in the field. And, And so this is a very different dynamic than before where cash generation then gets spent in the field and affects the rural economies where the drilling takes place. There isn't nearly as much of that going on now. The wealth generation is actually being distributed to the shareholders, of which there are a significant number in the local jurisdictions that are producing. But there's a lot of also shareholders that are outside of the jurisdictions and international holders of these uh, stocks, like the big companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So some is going into the local economy through the individuals that are shareholders, but some is leaving. The other implication of this is it really has shrunk our oil field service capacity. We just don't have the capacity that we had in uh, that 2014 era. I think in that time, we talked about 4,600 wells being drilled yeah. in uh, 2021. So if you go back to the 2014 era, there was about 11,000 wells drilled. So we have a much smaller oil field service capacity. In some ways, this reinforces high prices, right? Even if companies changed their mind and said, hey, we want to drill like back in 2014, I don't think it's possible in the short term to see that type of oil field service activity in Western Canada. It it, it won't happen. I mean, just uh, the prices are already inflating, not only here, but in the United States as well, in the oil field services. So the ability now to execute on drilling programs, expanded drilling programs is just not there. Not Yeah, you can't grow like you were before. And here's one other implication of the higher cash flow, which is kind of interesting. Uh, we talked about you know less spending in the local economy because companies aren't spending as much, but because they are making cash flow and paying dividends, they are taxable. When they spend all their money, then there's no profit left. There's no money left to tax. But when they don't, when they start to distribute it out to their shareholders, it actually is taxable. And so that can be helpful for federal and provincial revenues because there's more tax income there than there was in the past. And that can help some of those fiscal deficits. There's one more big 
difference between prior eras and today, and that is what I call the repatriation of influence, the buying out of multinational interests. So wind back six, seven years, it was the start of the exodus of a lot of multinationals who wanted to get out of the oil sands, starting with the European multinationals like the Statoils. And, you know, at the time it was viewed very negatively that the multinationals were leaving. It was like a vote against Canada. They're packing up. They're not going to invest here anymore, so on and so forth. But if you actually now look at what has happened, where we have seen Canadian companies, Canadian domiciled companies, CNRL, Sonova, Suncor dominantly, basically buying out the shareholdings of a lot of the big multinationals. What we have a situation is, is now the control of the cash flow is not in the hands of boardrooms that are outside the country. They're in the hands of the boardrooms that are in Canada and Calgary, basically. That is a really big dynamic, uh, the implications of which have yet to be thought about. Well, and this isn't the first time. Back in the 1990s, there was a similar period where because of the low prices, companies like BP, Amico, Texaco at the time, Marathon, sold their projects in Canada. And a lot of those assets went to Canadian companies. Yeah. Um, and that you know allowed those Canadian companies to become more strong. In fact, that's how some of the biggest companies that are Canadian-owned today came to be because they picked up those crown jewel type assets that were being right. left by the foreigners when they left and has allowed Canadian oil and gas company to be more profitable and strong. And I think this era is done the same. It's allowed those yeah. big Canadian companies to be more strong and more resilient. Yeah, if you, if you reflect what you see is a pattern where the big multinationals come in actually when prices are high and activity is strong, they invest billions of dollars to develop out projects and infrastructure. And then they typically pack up and leave at the bottom of the market and the consolidation happens amongst the Canadian companies. And I think that this cycle has repeated itself again over the course of the last half dozen years. And it's definitely resulted in a much more made in Canada oil and gas industry, as opposed to one that's been dominated by foreign interests. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's positive. And like you say, I mean, today it's not resulting in more money going into the Canadian economy because a lot of the money is going to shareholders, but because a lot of those shareholders might be more of them are Canadian, yeah. uh, it is resulting in more money coming to Canadians. Yeah. So, so there's lots of differences why this bull run is different than last time around. So if you look at the number of say 70, what's, what's our oil price expectation for this year? 70. Well, we're, we're being conservative and, and in our arc charts, we actually have an outlook for 2022, and we're using $73 WTI and 320 ACO. And that's going to result in $173 billion or a 10% wow. growth in revenue. And that would result in almost $100 billion of cash flow up 10% from last year. And we think that would result in, in the range of between 5,600 and 5,800 wells. So that's our outlook. You can see it on the charts there if you want to look at all the numbers. But uh, it may turn out that that's conservative. It may be higher than that if prices hold in at, at the levels we're seeing. $173 billion as compared to $144, which was recorded in 2014. That's just a staggering number. And we'll just see where the numbers fall. But right now, we're above $80 a barrel. That $73 a barrel expectation, it would have to average $73 over the course of the whole year. We're only a couple of weeks into January, but uh, it looks like we're in for another strong year of commodity prices. 
Mm-hmm. And therefore, strong revenue and cash flows. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's turn to the last section of our podcast, which is this new IEA released report on Canadian mm-hmm. energy. And just to give some context to the report, and, and I will put in, there's um, a video when they launched the report that you can look at. It's about an hour long. And then there's a link to the actual report, which is 261 pages long. Just to give you some context, the IEA regularly conducts in-depth reviews of Mm -hmm. energy policies of its member countries. Canada is a member country. And the last time they reviewed Canada was in 2015. And the goal is to provide some recommendations to help Canada effectively transform its energy sector in line with its net zero goals in this case. You know, the one thing I'll say about the document is it really is a great reference document. It has a chapter on everything Canadian energy. There's a chapter on electricity, oil, nuclear, coal. There's just a ton of background on the policy and the metrics around the industry. So, you know, I just uh, have you just be aware of that. If you're ever looking for facts or figures or what the latest policy is, it's actually a really great resource for that. And it's got a lot of history as well. In terms of where the recommendations came from, they did interview people from major industry associations, government agencies. And so, you know, I felt it overall was pretty well informed. You know, it wasn't just a bunch of folks in Paris that, uh, didn't know too much about what was going on in Canada. I think it was it was really well done in terms of uh, they knew mm-hmm. what was going on. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a it's a good report. It's worth reading. Definitely worth reading if you're in the business or financing the business or in the periphery of the business. I would say that there's a lot of these sorts of reports coming out that are, of course, talking about the industry 2030, 2040, 2050, and that's all fine. But we've got a situation here right now where we are in another bull market with strengthening oil prices, strengthening gas prices, geopolitics, and all sorts of issues. And uh, I think there needs to be more thought put into the near term now, rather than philosophizing about uh, long term. Now, I'm not saying don't strategize, don't think about long term issues, you need to do that. But, you know, there's some pretty serious energy related issues with respect to oil and gas that uh, are, I think, going to provide considerable volatility across the broad economy over the course of the next uh, couple of years. We talked about that in our last podcast. And major changes in commodity prices, especially to the upside, have a history of upending a lot of these kind of reports. You know, Fatih Burrell, who's the IA executive director, we actually had him on the podcast in the press release, the video that, that we linked to the show notes. He talked about the situation in Europe and that we do need oil and gas for now and that we need it from stable suppliers and that he encouraged Canada to you know, drastically reduce the emissions because he'd prefer that the oil and gas comes from a country that produces them in a clean way and is reliable. And he wants you know, Canada to be a producer mm-hmm. of the future. But he you know, believes that we need to get our emissions down in order to establish ourselves as as those preferred producers in the future. So I don't think there's any kind of message here. And they were very supportive, actually, of ongoing natural gas production from Canada and recognized the greenhouse gas emissions benefits as, as our goal is to be one of the lower mm-hmm. uh, intensity providers of LNG. We'll see what happens. I mean, a lot of our oil, pretty much all of our oil goes to the United States. Some of it is being exported as it transits out of the Gulf Coast and goes to markets dominantly, from what I understand now, in Asia. But the vast majority of our oil and gas exported goes to the United States. 
And so again, I think that you know what happens here in North America in the course of the next few years is going to be highly consequential to what happens in distant places as well. Because you know, mm-hmm. if you if you think back half a dozen years ago, what happened here in North America was the rise of the oil sands and then the rise of shale gas, shale oil, and so on, and that had profound effects globally. Now we've got a situation where all three of those are moderating in their growth, in fact, flattening out. The U.S. is down by a million barrels a day, and this is having major repercussions. And and so again, like it's nice to talk about the hundred thousand foot level. 10, 20, 30 years out. But uh, I think a lot of these kind of reports are going to have to be rewritten based on what happens in the next 10, 20, 30 months, not 10, 20, 30 years. Okay. All right. Well, I will say, I agree, but you you can't get somewhere without a plan, right? And well, I do I'm not, think I'm not debating, you do need uh, a plan about where you, how you're going to get to 2030 and 2050. And in fact, by the way, there was a lot of recommendations made in this document. Every chapter for every energy type had their own specific set of recommendations. Yeah, yeah. But there were some overarching recommendations at the beginning. I just want to talk about a few of those. One, which I think was dead on, is Canada needs a plan to get to net zero by 2050 and to meet the 2030 target. And it must be collaborative, working together with the provinces and territories. They stress this many times, and I think this is really important. You know, They talked about that Canada is very unique in that our constitution explicitly recognizes that the provinces and territories have rights over their non-renewable resources and as well as forestry and electrical energy, and that indigenous people have increasingly control over lands and resources. And that if Canada makes a plan that doesn't involve collaboration and get everyone on board, then this is never going to happen. And, and I think that's a really important point. You know, the feds you know, in Ottawa can make these plans, but if they can't get the provinces on board, it's never going to happen. It's just going to be a bunch of reports that that never come to be. So I do think that was really constructive. And I do think we need a lot more collaboration on working together. On well, I'm, I'm the first to promote collaboration, espouse collaboration. I, I agree. I, I mean, there's nothing you can disagree with in this report with respect to the need for collaboration and many other points. The thing is that very low oil prices or very high oil prices tends to increase polarization, especially in this country. And this is what I'm talking about. There are things that are happening now with very high oil prices, and it's going to almost create like a fiscal, again, polarization in this country. It actually, if we don't acknowledge what's about to come here and deal with it in the next near term, the collaboration that's needed for the long term is unfortunately, less probable, in my opinion. Yeah, no, for sure. The, the dynamics of uh, when one group's making a lot more money than others yeah, um, can really affect uh, the collaboration. Yeah. Well, that gets to another issue They that was one of their overarching issues, is we really need to enhance the grid interconnections across all regions sure. on electricity. Well, that sounds really easy, but it's just going to take a huge effort. And and you can look at this Atlantic Loop as an example, which they actually document quite well if you don't know too much about it. It's a project that aims to transport clean electricity from Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador to New Brunswick and Nova Scotia to displace their usage of coal. Well, the issue is it's pretty expensive. I think it's estimated to cost like $3 billion. And uh, those provinces, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, are going to have to pay big fees to support this transmission line. And is that the cheapest source of energy? We tend to think the politics of oil and gas are harsh. The politics of electricity from province to province 
and then cross-border state to state and all these interjurisdictional electrical interconnects. I mean, the politics around that are highly uncollaborative, actually. So, you know, great recommendation. But if you actually get down to how are we going to overcome that collaboration, what are the solutions to do so, that's actually kind of lacking in the report. You know, we've got to figure that out. With that, I'll leave it to our listeners to, <laughs> to read the rest of the report. Tons of recommendations there around uh, efficiency, around how we're going to get to the net zero emissions cars by 2035. We have no plan to do that. We basically don't have a plan in most of these sectors. And that that's really what the main takeaway is mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. And the other big bottom line is we just got a whole bunch of work to do if we're really going to make this happen in Canada. Yeah, I think so. I, it, look, it's a good report. It's good to plan. It's good to strategize. But it's also good to realize what's happening in the here and now and that the plans are a dynamic thing as we deal with all sorts of known unknowns as we go forward into this decade. And the known unknowns, the geopolitics, this upward bullish price cycle for the traditional energy commodities, I mean, these are movies we've seen before. So hopefully we can also go back in the past and learn from that and learn not to make the mistakes of the past going forward into the future. But maybe we'll save that for a later podcast. Thank you for joining our podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.